I think that there are, are ways to prevent this disease. And as Chris described, I, these are really pretty simple environmental controls that would suppress or blow away the harmful dust. Uh, we're talking about sufficient ventilation, use of water sprays. This, uh, those are very simple methods. It's just a matter of is there a commitment to doing it and doing it right. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a beautiful Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers. GoClio.com, App River, email and web security experts. You can find out more about App River at, not surprisingly, AppRiver.com. And PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to PCLaw.com slash radio. Well, Bob, black lung is a disease that has been described by one doctor as a diabolical torture. It's caused by breathing in large amounts of coal dust. Most of its victims are coal miners who find it more and more difficult to breathe until finally they die of asphyxiation. Well, way back in 1969, Congress uh, took steps to eradicate black lung disease and passed strict mining uh, regulations. But uh, a recent investigation by the Center for Public Integrity uh, and NPR has found that uh, after the numbers of black lung disease declined for three decades, uh, they started to increase again. uh, And even more troubling, uh, the rates are... uh, are rising for the most dangerous uh, and fastest moving type of black lung disease and rising dramatically. Well, Bob, we have Chris Hamby, who's going to join us now. Chris is an investigative journalist for the Center for Public Integrity and the author of this eye-opening investigation. You can read his report on iwatchnews.org, motherjones.com, and npr.org. Welcome to Legal Talk Network, Chris. Thanks for having me on. And also here to... uh Help us uh, with this discussion is attorney Stephen Sanders. Uh, Steve is director and founder of the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Steve has been representing minors in uh, 105C discrimination and black lung cases for more than 20 years. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Steve. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, Chris, uh, this is uh, a a really troubling report. Uh, Tell us about what you have found uh, in this report, and and, uh, especially this reversal of the trend. Yeah, so I think you laid it out pretty well. Um, There was a precipitous decline after uh, dust controls were first put in place uh, after the 1969 Federal Coal Mine Health and Safety Act. And um, they made progress. Uh, There was essentially steady decline from the 70s through about the mid-90s. Uh, since then, the trend has reversed, and um, we're actually seeing uh, rates have doubled. Um, 
and particularly in a triangle of central Appalachia, uh, eastern Kentucky, southern West Virginia, and western Virginia, um, the rates are uh, have increased even more than that. And uh, like you said, what's more troubling is that um, they're finding more and more of these cases of uh, the more severe uh, type. It's called complicated co-workers pneumoconiosis, which is the formal name for black lung. Um, and they're finding them in younger and younger minors, um, and there are a number of reasons for um, why they believe that may be happening. Well, Chris, what was happening? I mean, what what was it that that we saw in 69 and before 69 that led to the legislation? Well, that really arose out of... Um, you look at that time period and uh, men who had worked in the mines for at least 25 years, uh, about 45% of them uh, ended up getting black lung. Um, there was a sense, um, and it was the, the Farmington disaster in, uh, I believe, 1968 uh, really was sort of a catalyst for this, but it brought it all to a head, and there were protests throughout the coal fields in West Virginia, uh, wildcat strikes, um, Myers walking off the job, and there was a sense that something needed to be done, uh, not just from the safety side, but also on the health side, um, to rein in this disease that was, uh, as I said, you know, for experienced miners, almost half of them getting it. Uh, and so what came out of it was the 1969 uh, Federal Coal Mine uh, Health and Safety Act, and that first uh, limited uh, dust to certain levels in mines. And, you know, it seemed to be working for a while. And um, now, as we've seen with the resurgence, something else is going on. So, Steve, your your organization represents coal miners and their families on issues of black lung and, and mine safety. When you became aware of this latest, these latest findings, did it surprise you or is this consistent with what you've seen in your practice? Some of the findings do surprise me. Um, you know, NIOSH investigators have been working on this issue pretty continually for probably close to 20 years now. And in 1995, they issued a report recommending that the respirable dust levels be reduced to one milligram per cubic meter, which is half of the present level that's allowed by law. Um, you know, MSHA seemed to be following up on that recommendation in the late 90s and then backed away from mandating that by law. And it was soon after the NIOSH report, I'd say in the early 2000, uh, that I began to learn that the X-ray surveillance program that NIOSH runs was showing an increase, as uh, Chris described, in both the level of simple co-workers pneumoconiosis and the presence of what he called complicated co-workers pneumoconiosis, and that's sometimes called progressive massive fibrosis. Um, and just to make the point, recent uh, NIOSH data that was released about a month ago shows a surprising level of pneumoconiosis among surface coal miners, too. Um, so it is all alarming, and it certainly is a public health issue that needs to be dealt with. Well, Steve, what is it that happened with the regulations? I mean, obviously in 69, regulations got passed, things got better. Did the regulations just not get enforced in the 90s, or was there some type of uh, 
environmental issue that arose that wasn't anticipated earlier? Why did this? Why did we start getting black lung again? I think that there's a couple of factors. Um, it was a statute that said that the level of respirable dust had to be set at a level that would prevent miners from developing disabling lung disease. So perhaps the level wasn't low enough. In addition, the disease is probably caused by a combination of the inhalation of coal dust and rock dust. And rock is uh, probably now 50% of what is mined. In other words, as they mine underground seams, the seams are thinner and they're separated by strata of rock. Most of it is sandstone, and as they, at least in eastern Kentucky. And as they mine through the coal, they mine the rock as well. And then in the process of cleaning the coal, they separate the rock out. But the exposure to the rock dust and the free radicals that are released in cutting rock is probably a part of the problem. In addition, the mining machinery, I think, produces an intense amount of this uh, respirable dust. And the dust that we're talking about is very, very fine. I mean, this is invisible to your eye. So the miners are inhaling a lot of uh, very, very injurious dust that they're not probably even seeing. Um, The same thing is probably true on surface mines. That is, in the process of mining, the drilling, the uh, exploding of the rock strata to get to the coal, the trucks and the other equipment pulverizing rock surfaces to move the coal and to mine the coal. All of that is releasing the same sort of toxic substances. Um, the other factor is, I think, is non-compliance with the law. I think the investigative report talked about that uh, extremely well. I mean, we've had issues with fraud in collecting samples, companies are required to do their own sampling, but they're allowed to do sampling at less than full production. So it's unlikely that the sampling is really giving us a true representation of the uh, amount of dust that is in the air when the miners are working. Um, Those kinds of things also, I think, are a significant part of the problem here. Well, Chris Hamby, you you reported just last week that that Federal regulators are now uh, looking at this issue uh, all over again or, or uh, taking a more intense look at the issue uh, in response to uh, your reporting here. Uh, I mean, what, what were, you know, Steve alluded to this, but what were some of the, the failures of enforcement that you found in your reporting? Um, well, some of the key points were um, one to sort of go back to what Steve was talking about with the uh, with the rock dust um, potentially being a, a key issue here. Um, they IMSHA does uh, the Mine Safety and Health Administration uh, sample for uh, silica is, is what's uh, the toxic component that's ground up in cutting rock, and um, what. I found, uh, actually, we FOIA'd, uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the entire uh, respirable dust sampling database uh, going back to the 70s and did an analysis on that. And um, they've only done the silica uh, analysis more recently, but found that in each of the past 25 years, uh, the average silica sample has actually been above the limit that they set. And 
what's more, that limit itself is already twice what uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health recommended was a safe level in 1974. Um, so you've got that. And then um, you've got what we also found in looking at the respirable dust database was that there were about uh, from 2000 to 2001, there were about 53,000 uh, instances uh, where a miner uh, had been overexposed to dust. Uh, but during that same time, uh, regulators had issued only about 2,400 violations. Um, now, that's that's largely uh, that really really brings home. Um, a lot of the the problems with the current regulatory system, which allows uh, companies to average five samples, uh, and so you may have one or two guys with very very high exposures who are actually operating the machines that are cutting through the coal and rock, uh, but then you've got you know maybe three samples of guys who are working further away from the coal face, so those high samples go away, um, and it's as if those guys don't exist, even though they're being very highly exposed to um, the dust that causes black lung. Um, and so what the uh, Mine Safety and Health Administration said that they were looking at, uh, or apparently is looking at, uh, is ways that they can use uh, civil and criminal uh, penalties to go after people who either um, uh, who, who essentially game the system, um, which, uh, you know, has has the, the these dust samples over the years have been shown to be, I think everyone pretty much agrees that they're not in any way representative of what miners are actually breathing. Steve, tell us about black lung. I mean, what is it physically that miners go through? I mean, the, the that type of a death by asphyxiation just sounds terrible. It is terrible. I think it's a very cruel disease. What we're talking about is uh, literally smothering all the time. And uh, the disease can, I think there's two distinct factors here. One is the sort of uh, lesions that form as sort of scars within the fine uh, terminal bronchi of the lung. And that shows up on x-ray as pneumoconiosis. You also uh, frequently find that miners developed emphysema as a result of inhalation of dust. Uh, the emphysema is destruction of lung tissue, and as the tissue in the lung is, uh, is destroyed, uh, and the lungs do not, um, you're, you're just not able to breathe normally. Either way, though, you end up with this sensation of breathlessness. You're unable to, you know, as, and as the disease progresses, you know, my clients tell me how difficult it is for them to even walk around their house or to take a shower, uh, that they have to pause, that they have to catch their breath if they want to, you know, do any kind of activity. And uh, it's often difficult for them to sleep lying down, so they end up sleeping in a recliner chair where their head is elevated. And the uh, con it continues as they go uh, get older that they become more and more short of breath. We need to take a short break right now. We'll be back uh, in just a few minutes uh, with more on uh, the resurgence of black lung disease among miners. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. 
Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions, like that from the North Carolina State Bar, indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that, as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions, and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial, all backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Chris Hamby, investigative journalist for the Centers for Public Integrity, and Stephen Sanders, the director of the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. We're going to continue our discussion on the resurgence of black lung. And Chris, let's turn to you and and talk about your analysis of the databases that the Federal Mine and Safety Administration has, and specifically the issue of a number of violations compared to the amount of the dust that miners are inhaling. Right. Well, as I mentioned before, there's there's a definitely not a one-to-one relationship between a single overexposure for a miner and a violation. Um, as I mentioned, um, the uh, analysis indicates that there are a great many overexposures and very few violations, which is largely a result of the way the system is set up. Uh, another important point is that once a violation is issued, um, you can essentially make it go away, uh, the operator can, by taking five of their own samples that indicate compliance. And then furthermore, uh, from this uh, 
enforcement data that we looked at, um, we found that um, it was routine for regulators to grant extensions uh, to mining companies to try and get back in compliance. Um, meanwhile, um, miners could be exposed to, continue to be exposed to too much dust. Um, and actually, it was more than half of the cases. Um, they actually gave them extra time to try and fix the problems. And it was particularly acute in southern West Virginia, where uh, we're seeing some of the worst problems. One of the uh Articles in in this in this package uh, you did on, at the Center for Public Integrity talks about efforts more than a quarter century of efforts uh, in Washington to uh, bring about uh, stronger laws in this area and reform laws in this area. Uh, Steve, I'm, I'm wondering from from where you sit, uh, do you see a need for stronger laws, and if so, what what would those laws look like? I do see a need for stronger laws. You know, several, I guess it was about five years ago, we actually sued the Secretary of Labor to mandamus the Secretary to follow the NIOSH recommended criteria. And that suit was unsuccessful. But we then have asked the Department of Labor, and they have issued rulemaking to adopt regulations that would both lower the permissible level of respirable dust and adopt other various measures as a way of trying to protect miners from excessive dust exposure. Um, one of those is a, a newly developed device. It's been out for a few years now that the uh, miner would carry that uses digital equipment and gives the miner a, a ability to obtain a current exposure level. That is, when you're working, you can actually look at this monitor and you can see what is the level of the dust in the immediate atmosphere where you're working. The Mine Safety and Health Administration and NIOSH developed this. MSHA has indicated in its proposed regulation that they want to mandate the use of this uh, device. But the, the regulation was proposed and uh, comments have been received and we're now waiting for MSHA to make a final rule. And uh, we've been you know, waiting for that rule for quite a while. Uh, unfortunately, back in December, uh, Congress passed a uh, statute that required MSHA to go through a uh, study with the General Accounting Office as to the methods that they used to determine um, the, the, the extent of the problem. And so, you know, what we're seeing, it's just extremely frustrating to try to get a rule that's effective and it's in place. It's just been extremely slow. And like I said, in 1995, NIOSH recommended that the level of exposure be cut to one milligram per cubic meter. And uh, as Chris was saying, uh, operators have had, uh, you know, have been unable to comply with the two milligram standard, which is just completely insufficient to protect miners from pneumoconiosis. Is this something where we actually really need to see uh, coal miners with breathing masks, much in the same way that firefighters wear them when they go into a burning building? Chris, what do you think about that? Well, um, a lot of miners that we've talked to actually, um, well, first of all, a lot of them don't like to wear respirators um, because you think about the environment that you're working in, um, it's 
can sometimes uh, be very cramped. You have to communicate with people. And, you know, a lot of times if you have facial hair, the the respirator won't seal correctly. Um, and there actually have been uh, a number of lawsuits against companies making these respirators um, saying that they were ineffective. Um, now, and in sort of an interesting twist, some of these companies have then turned and sought to bring mine operators into the lawsuit saying our respirators, essentially our respirators work fine, but they're not designed to deal with the absurd amounts of dust that you're exposing your workers to. Um, now, there are also uh, Airstream helmets, but those are uh, there's some problems with that as well, they, but those would essentially uh, uh, force uh, cleaner air uh, through a helmet into um, that the miner could breathe. But all all of these things are sort of last resort measures, and the law itself stipulates that the primary way that you're supposed to deal with dust is through engineering controls and through things like, uh, really, it's pretty pretty basic, keeping your ventilation correct, hanging your curtains, uh, making sure that air is flowing through the mine, making sure that your water sprays are working correctly and suppressing the dust. So um, there are lots of things that mining companies could do to suppress the dust aside from uh, having respirators, which is sort of a last-ditch effort. But all of those things uh, mean slowing down production, and uh, that means less money for the mining company. Chris, where is could the I, United Mine work? Yeah, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. What Chris said is true. And when I talk to my clients about whether they've used those kinds of masks, uh, there are some practical problems with that. If you're operating equipment and you need to wear safety glasses and you're wearing a mask, it frequently causes the glasses to fog up. You can't see. If you're using the Airstream helmet, the noise interferes with your ability to hear your coworkers or other you know, uh, other things that you need to be able to be alert to when you're working in kind of dangerous environment. So those devices are, like Chris said, I mean, they're really last resort devices, and it's not practical to think that miners could work and wear those. Uh, it would become a new safety problem. And I will add also that yeah. um, there were a number of miners that I talked to who wore, or uh, at least told us they wore respirators religiously and uh, still have contracted the most severe form of the disease. Yeah, Chris, I wanted to ask about uh, United Mine Workers uh, Union, uh, where, where it's been uh, in all this, whether it has, uh, uh, what, what role it's played, if any, in, in protecting workers here or in monitoring the situation. Well, it's uh, somewhat unclear. They've actually um, staked out a position on the new proposed rulemaking that they came to an agreement with um, the Bituminous Coal Operators uh, Association. And uh, what they've said is, is, I mean, pretty much everyone acknowledges that the resurgence is real. Um, now, there's some debate over um, whether you know there's a need for a new regulation to address it or not. Uh, the union certainly feels that there is, although they have uh, some concerns with uh, portions of the proposed regulation. But on the whole, they feel like the need is to go ahead and get it out there um, and that, um, you know, these these continuous personal dust monitors that, that C was talking about would be uh, a giant uh, step forward in terms of, of giving real-time readouts of the amount of dust that miners are breathing. 
um, and you know cutting down on uh, some of the ability for operators to uh, game the system, although I wouldn't completely eliminate it. But um, there, there's disagreement on uh, whether those are really ready for prime time yet. Um, but the, the mine workers essentially are saying we need something out now. And, of course, if it's not out by the end of the year, um, there's a very real possibility that, as has happened twice before, um, if there's a change in administrations, it may just die altogether. Well, Chris, you had a particular uh, instance in one of the articles that you wrote about the Markham family. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Markhams are uh, an eastern Kentucky uh, family, uh, generations of miners. Um, the patriarch of that family, Ray, is 83 years old now and has been drawing benefits uh, for black lung for about 30 years. Um, he worked in a different time. He worked uh, primarily before the 1969 law took effect uh, and dust was largely uncontrolled in the mines. Um, now, he um, he has three sons who entered the mines uh, after all after the 1969 law took effect, uh, which in theory uh, was supposed to have all but eradicated the disease. Uh, all three of his sons have black lung uh, now, and one at age 51 has the uh, most severe form of the disease, complicated co-workers pneumoconiosis, and has had eight pieces of his lungs removed. Uh, his, the 50-year-old son um, is at the worst stage of the simpler form of the disease, and his doctors already discussed, even at age 50, potentially hooking him up to oxygen tank part-time. And then uh, the third brother has a, uh, is relatively lucky, I guess you could say, um, in that he has a lesser form of the disease at age 59. But um, as the doctor who evaluated all of them told me, um, it, it shouldn't be that men like that exist at all at this day and age, um, given what the 1969 law was supposed to do and given what we have the ability to do to prevent this disease. Is this really a preventable disease? Is this something that we're just going to have to live with and recognize that you know, you're going to work underground, deep underground, where there's not enough ventilation, and this is just a consequence of that kind of work? I mean, do we have to be realistic about this? I don't accept that. I think that there are ways to prevent this disease. And as Chris described, these are really pretty simple environmental controls that would suppress or blow away the harmful dust. Uh, we're talking about sufficient ventilation, ventilation directed to the areas where the coal is being mined and where the dust is being generated, so it moves that dust away. Use of water sprays. Is a, those are very simple methods. It's just a matter of is there a commitment to doing it and doing it right. And that may cost them money and it may reduce production, which is a you know, byproduct of the need to protect workers from this, you know, this hazard. Well, regrettably, we're uh, just about out of time for this show. But before we uh, conclude today, we'd like to give each of you an opportunity to give us your final thoughts on this topic and also to... Uh, let our listeners know how they can follow up with you and get more information on the work that you're doing. So, uh, Chris Hamby, let's start with you. Yeah, well, um, you know, I continue to to work on this subject, and I'm actually in the midst of taking a look at the uh, compensation system that was set up to um, 
to help these miners uh, file for benefits. So um, I would invite anyone who has any experience with that, which is a lot of people, to contact me. Um, our website, if you'd like to read more, is iwatchnews.org. And um, my uh, information is all on there if you just type in my name. Um, I would also note that we're doing uh, a number of other uh, worker-related stories. This story in particular was part of a series we're doing called Hard Labor that addresses um, threats to American working men and women uh, throughout the country in a variety of industries. So um, that'll be a periodic series that people can check back with uh, on our site. But please do contact me, uh, and I would be very interested to hear about your experiences with the compensation system for Black Lung. Thank you very much. And Stephen Sanders, uh, your closing thoughts. Well, thank you. I really do want to thank you for putting the show together and Chris and the people at the NPR for calling attention to this uh, serious problem. You know, coal mining occurs in some really relatively isolated areas of the country. Uh, mining is frequently the only industry uh, in that area that really pays a significant wage. And I think workers feel Sometimes that they're very afraid to speak up about uh, job conditions for fear that they'll lose their job or lose their source of income. We do have a very serious public health problem with coal workers' pneumoconiosis, and much work remains to be done. I'm very hopeful that the Mine Safety and Health Administration puts out its regulations and that the regulations are strict enough to reduce the level of respirable dust of the miners do not get black lung disease. Um, I'm happy to talk with anyone who'd be interested in getting in touch with me. The Appalachian Citizens Law Center is located in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Phone number is 606-633-3929. We also have a website, Appalachian Citizens Law Center, where you can get in touch with me by email at steve at appalachianlawcenter.org. Uh, we're a nonprofit private organization, and there's three attorneys there. We work on mining issues, primarily miners' health and safety and environmental issues related to coal mining. And uh, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to be on your show today. Craig, uh, any closing thoughts on this topic yourself? Well, I grew up in the uh, anthracite region of Pennsylvania, and a lot of my friends were coal miners, and many of their fathers had uh, black lung disease. And it it is a it's a uh, horrendously debilitating disease, and it's just terrible to watch men die from it after working as hard as they've worked. And I'm, I applaud Chris and Stephen for their efforts in this regard and, and just personally thank them because I know the ravages of this disease, and I'm very grateful to both of them for their work. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I was listen, been listening to the, their comments during this program and thinking uh, – the, the debt of gratitude we owe to uh, investigative journalists and to public interest lawyers, uh, two, two classes of people uh, represented on this show today for the important work they're doing. I, I mean, it's interesting that uh, this information uh, was there. The government was monitoring this, and, and it, it, took, uh, it, it took an investigative journalist to, to dig this up and bring this to the forefront. I, I, I hope uh, uh, the folks in Washington uh, act on this, and uh, that uh, once, uh, you know, if, if they do act, that, that they follow up and they, that there's enforcement uh, and follow up and that this isn't just forgotten. I mean, it's just it's just an amazing thing that this is still uh, an issue and that it's continuing to get get worse again as an issue after all these years.
Yeah, and I'm so glad that Steve's answer to my question was that there, he's just not willing to accept that this is not a solvable problem because you probably heard it in my voice that it, it, the people in the region, in, in the anthracite region in Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania and southeastern Pennsylvania, I think really have kind of a hopeless feeling about this disease. They feel as though it's just never going to go away. And I'm glad that there are people like Stephen out there who are willing to fight to make it go away. Yeah. So thank, thanks to both of you guys for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right. Bob, we want to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts, including a few from Lawyer to Lawyer. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we have an Android app that you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your Android phone. And we hope to have an iPhone app out shortly. So check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Talk to you then. Thanks. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.